Have you um, ever gotten involved with something and didn't quite know what you had gotten into? This week we have a uh, one day a week school that meets here at our church. And about a half an hour before uh, services started on Wednesday night, we had a mother frantically rush back here with her kid because this was the third pair of glasses they had lost this year. And she was absolutely certain that they had left him here in the sanctuary for their early morning gathering. And so they came and knocked on the office door, and I came over and, and, and helped them look, and it was the mother and two of her children. And then somebody else came in and kind of saw us looking, and they start looking, and then someone else came in and started looking. Pretty soon there were 10 or 11 people in here looking, and then finally somebody went, what are we looking for? Have you ever had something like that happen? Uh, you know, play a game with, you know, David and Lene Nicholson, and they don't teach you all the rules until, like, they beat you two or three times. So you get into it, and then you go, oh, wait, no, that's how you play the game. I went down to a, a leadership conference um, with the state convention a, a couple weeks ago, and it was one of those things where they make you do kind of a role-playing game as kind of a learning opportunity. And so they explain this kind of eccentric game that you've never heard of. You have all these different sized balls, little ping pong balls, golf balls, softballs, and and a team of 10 people has to get it from this point to a point that's impossible for 10 people to stretch without throwing it and without moving. You can't move while you're doing it. And so they explain there's like seven or eight rules that you can't violate, and you have these little troughs that you have to kind of transport these these, uh, different sized diameter balls. And they say you have five minutes to prepare and then you can you have 10 minutes to actually execute the game and see how good you do. And so as soon as he says, you know, time starts now, five minutes to prepare, game starts, we've got a guy in the group who's just, you know, larger than life football coach. All right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get out there, and we're just going to see what they got and, and check it out. And you go here, you go here, you go here. One, two, three, break, let's go. We get out there, and we have no idea what we're doing. And finally, one of the ladies goes, what are we doing? And the whole point of the exercise was that five minutes of preparation is probably worth 10 minutes of execution because you can actually do what you're doing when you know what you're doing much more effectively. And this morning, as we continue through Matthew chapter 13, it's kind of the same uh, situation. The disciples have kind of signed on with Jesus. And in some ways, and just honestly, I don't know that the disciples really knew what they were getting into. Um, Jesus is, through Matthew 13, told a whole series of parables. The first half, the first four parables, were told publicly to the crowds at large. These last parables, the one we looked at last week and the ones that we'll look at today, are told privately to the disciples. But if you think about the parables that Jesus has told up to this point, they've been, frankly, a little discouraging. He says, you know, there's four different kinds of soil, and you're going to spread the word over all of them, but only one of them is going to respond. And then he tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he says, you know, where the, where the good wheat grows up, there's going to be weeds that grow up right along it. And you're going to have to coexist with uh, the, the children of the evil kingdom until God comes back. And the disciples are going, wow, this is, this is what we signed up for? And so I think Jesus is providing a little bit of a kind of a gut check, a reality check. And saying, hey guys, all right, listen, there's been some, I, I've taught some things that have been rather strong. Let me remind you why we're doing what we're doing and what it is that we're actually truly seeking. And so Jesus likes to tell parables in pairs. He told the parable of the four soils. 
Then he told the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He told the parable of the little bitty mustard seed and the little handful of leaven and how they work kind of hiddenly, but they have a great impact. Today he's talking about one of the things that we just sang about, the worth of the gospel. If you knew that you could pay for a right relationship with God, what would that be worth to you? There's not many people that go through life without the experience of some kind of brokenness in a relationship, whether it's a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, a husband and a spouse. There's estrangement that happens. And if you knew today that there was an online account that you could go to and you could pay money and it would automatically fix your relationships, what would it be worth to fix a relationship with a dad that you're estranged with or a wife that, you know, the things just aren't right. What's the gospel worth to you? And that's really uh, one of the points that he makes in his first parable this morning. If you don't have a copy of uh, your own copy of the scriptures, it's page 728 in your pew Bible. We'll be in Matthew 13, and we're going to be in the latter half of that, beginning in verse uh, 44. We're going to look at these kind of in a, uh, we'll read kind of chunks of scripture at a time, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about a couple principles that, that come from them. But we'll begin in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl... He went and sold everything he had, and he bought it. First principle is that the gospel can be found either by stumbling or by searching. The gospel can be found either by stumbling or by searching. Look at the first man. It says that he is walking through a field. Perhaps he's taken a little shortcut. He, he, he's gotten off the path, and he's trying to get to that path over there. And in order to do it, he's passing through a field. And what happens? He literally stumbles onto a treasure. He sees a piece of earth that looks not natural. It's been messed with perhaps a long time ago, but there is some kind of displacement that he goes, something's not right with this piece of ground, and he, he kicks it. And he goes, man, there's something solid in there. It's not, it's not dirt. And then he, he begins to uncover it, and he realizes this is, this is a treasure. And this is not, you know, patch on the eye, uh, pirate ship, our treasure, you know, X marks the spot. This is the way people did banking back then. There were no safety deposit boxes. There were no banks. There was no online banking. So what did you do if you had money? You, you, could, you keep it in your house, perhaps a portion of it. But what if you had a lot of money? Because you didn't have locks on the doors and you didn't have bars on the windows. You would typically take your money and go to a remote location where no one would find it. And you bury it. And so this man stumbles upon it and he finds it. He just... He's not looking for it. It just happens to be there. And then the second man. The second man is a, 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 a jewelry merchant. Specifically, he's uh, referred to as a uh, merchant in search of fine pearls. So this is Mr. Zales. This is Mr. K. This is whoever. He's looking for fine jewels. He's not just looking for, you know, uh, cubic zirconia. He's not looking for cheap gemstones. He's looking for fine jewels. And it says that he finds this pearl that is, my translation said priceless. 
and he finds a way to acquire this perfect specimen. He's an expert. He knows what he's looking for, and he finds it. One stumbles upon it in an hour, and one spends a lifetime searching, and after much diligence finds it. You know, it reminds us that when we talk about how we come to the gospel, everybody kind of, everyone comes down the same pathway. Some just come down it really quick, and some take some time. Some of you, the very first time you've heard the gospel, you go to youth camp, you go to kids camp, you do whatever, you come to church, and you hear the gospel, who Jesus is, that he is man, that he is God, who you are, that you are a sinner, that Christ's death uh, is in your place, that you might have peace with God, that your sins might be forgiven. And the first time you hear it, you say, I believe. And then there are other people that it's a little bit more of a process. You have to hear it. It has to wash over you time and time and time and time again. And you see examples of this in Scripture. You know, who is like the uh, man who stumbled upon the treasure? You remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, one of the deacons, is conducting a great revival. People are getting saved left and right. And God, by his spirit, tells Philip, I want you to go out into this remote area. Philip's like, really? You want me to leave hundreds of people, thousands of people to go out in the wilderness? And he said, absolutely. And it just so happens that a chariot goes by. And this Ethiopian uh, treasurer uh, is heading back in his chariot, and he's happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip, in a feat of miraculous power, runs alongside the chariot while these, the horses are drawing it, or carrying it, and he says, hey, do you know, you know what you're reading? And the guy goes, man, I just found this book. I'm reading it. I have no idea. I need someone to explain it to me. Philip's like, can I get a ride? I can tell you about it. I know a little something about the Bible. And he sits down and he explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And immediately, first time he hears the gospel, he gets saved. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul, an uh, up-and-rising Jewish star who persecuted Christians because he was pursuing God and he thought that God was pleased with the way that he treated Christians, condoning their capture and their torture and even their murder. And then on the road to Damascus, he realizes that all of his searching culminates in Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. He had been searching his whole life and finally found it. And the Ethiopian didn't even know what he was looking for. And God just brought the gospel right to him. God brings the gospel to us in different ways. And uh, one is not better than the other. Though personally, I would say, as soon as you can get saved, you need to do it. Would you rather give an entire life to Christ or half of a life to Christ? Man, it's, it's awesome when we see kids, when we see our young ones, when we see young adults who can give the best years, the most years to their Lord. It's wonderful to see anyone come, but it's a special thing to see someone who can dedicate their entire life to serving the Lord. The second thing I think we see in this passage is that the gospel is worth, listen to this, a joyful sacrifice. Oftentimes when we talk about a sacrifice, you know, we kind of talk about it like, you know, man, you got to take one for the team. I've got to make a sacrifice. There's no willingness that kind of is sounded in that note at all. Well, you know, goes around, comes around. I guess I need to make a sacrifice. God bless it. Really? With that attitude? I don't think it's blessed at all. It's, it's, it's messed up. And you don't get any of this note of, like, drudgery. Oh, yeah, man, there's this treasure right here. Yeah, if I pay 20 bucks for this field, I get that treasure. Yeah, I suppose I got to do it. Man, I've been looking for, you know, the best pearl my entire life. And, uh, man, that's perfect. I'll never find another pearl like that. 
well, yeah, I guess I got to sell everything and get it. Listen, guys, when I, I have never searched for a perfect gem except once in my life. It was when I bought that engagement ring. You know, and listen, I didn't know diamonds came in different varieties. But you know, uh, if you have a good salesperson, they teach you the four C's. Color, cut, clarity, and... Man, it was a woman that answered too. All you guys, yeah, cost, that's it. That was the fifth C for me. I'm like, dang. And so, you know, I wanted to find the most beautiful, most perfect diamond. I knew I was going to spend the most amount that I could. And I went, wow, that's small. Um, you look for the right thing. Listen, I didn't pay that much for my first car. You know, and you just go, man, couldn't it have been a little bit bigger? You know, so maybe. But the point is that no matter how much you spend, when you're spending it with the right motivation, it's really not a sacrifice, it's a joy. Because you know what it represents. And here's the thing that's crazy. The first guy doesn't steal the treasure, you know, he, he finds the treasure, it says that he reburies it, and he goes and he sells everything he has to buy that field. Because he knows that the cost that he will pay for the field uh, is much, much less than the value that is hidden in it. Here's the thing that's crazy. Um, whoever the dude is that buried the treasure that owns the field, he did a good job hiding it, didn't he? He forgot it was there. Why in the world would he sell it? And so the man goes about the appropriate way. He pays the fair kind of market value for it, and he does it with great joy because he knows he gets a bargain. He gets a bargain. Now, for the pearl hunter, um, obviously, if he's a searcher for fine jewels, he's probably buying from some kind of jewelry exchange, some kind of marketplace. We don't get any idea that he gets a bargain, but he finds a, per, a, a pearl that is perfect, and he's willing to make any sacrifice to buy a pearl that he refers to as priceless. Kind of a little wordplay there. How do you buy something that's priceless? Well, you sell everything that you've got. Everything that you've got. And for both of these men, the joy of discovering a priceless treasure, which in, this, in this, these parables are the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, when they, they have the joy of discovery, it allows them to joyfully get rid of whatever they formerly prized as a possession. Whatever it is, it's prize. And the same is true for us. Because we know that whatever we pay for the, uh, whatever price we pay for the kingdom of heaven, whatever price we pay for the cost of discipleship is mere pocket change compared to the value that God has given us. I asked the question earlier on, what would you pay? Not just to see a human relationship restored. What would you pay to know that you were in a right relationship with God? Is there any price that would be too high? And in similar fashion, where the application comes to us, we should be willing to gladly sacrifice all things for the opportunity to possess the one thing that really matters. How much would you have to lose before you gave up on the gospel? There are people, there are heroes of the faith that lost everything, even their life, but they held on with tenacity to the gospel because it was the thing that was most precious to them. You know, I often wonder, I'm not a chicken little uh, conspiracy theorist. Pastor Reed does a good job with that. Um, uh, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't have any clairvoyance that Jesus' return is right around the corner, though I seem to see evidence that um, Jesus' return is shorter, not longer. We're one day closer, whatever your perspective is on the return of Christ. And I sit there and I wonder, when persecution comes, because undoubtedly it will come, how full will our churches be? 
You know, when the government comes to claim our building, which will happen, we will lose our building at some point. It's inevitable. Um, who will be here to oppose the government? There'll be some people that will, but there'll be a lot of people who go, yeah, I don't want my name on that list. You know, I don't want them to know who I am. Jesus is saying here, the gospel is worth a joyful sacrifice of all things. And here's the thing. The third point, it's not specifically in the text, but it's true nonetheless. There are a lot of people that want the treasure of the gospel. There's very few people that are willing to buy it. The issue isn't what people gave up, it's why. Finding something truly precious was worth the sacrifice of everything. And for us, if we lose everything, but we gain the kingdom of heaven, that's a pretty square deal, friends. If we get the kingdom, that's a good thing. That's not a sacrifice, that's smart. To, uh, Jim Elliott said, to, gain, to give up that which you can never keep, to gain that which you can never lose, that's good. You can't keep your stuff. There, there are no U-Hauls that follow the hearse when you go to the graveyard. That's just true. I've never seen it. You cannot keep what you've got, and you have no idea how the people who get what you had are going to use it. The Bible says, man, that'll make you stay awake at night. Or if I give my kids riches, is it going to ruin them or is it going to bless them? Man, listen, money's a good thing, but it can mess you up as much as it can bless you. And says, listen, just you're not taking it with you. But to gain the thing that you can never lose, a right standing with God is precious. I love the way Paul says it in Philippians 3.8. He basically says, I am a person of tremendous privilege. I have been afforded uh, great education. I have been given um, uh, high standing, great fame, and even no small degree of fortune. But listen to what he says in Philippians 3.8. I begin in verse 7. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss in order to gain Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider those things as filth, as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. This is everything I have ever owned, gained, or gotten a pat on the back for is garbage if I don't have Jesus. And I will gladly give it up. You see, many people want the jewels, but they don't want to make the sale to possess it. You mean I, gotta, I don't just have to like, like believe in him and not do anything? You mean it's actually supposed to change my life? You mean I, 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 can't, I can't continue to live the way that I want to live? There's changes that I need to make? Well, listen, friend, if God is the creator of the universe and he has all power and you say that in any, he's in your life and he hasn't made any change, then somebody's lying. Either you're lying that you have him, or he's lying that he has power to actually do something in your life. And guess what? I don't think he's lying. I don't think Jesus is. When he comes in, he rearranges the furniture. He changes things around. He gets things moving in the right direction. And there are so many people that they hang out in the field, and they play with treasure that they don't own, and they hope that God will someday give them squatter's rights to that field. Maybe if I hang around it enough, God will give it to me. It's baloney. Because if you want to grab up the treasure, you've got to give up something. And the way the Bible talks about it is you have to give up your life. You have to give up your rights. You have to give up your own sovereignty. You have to take the, the, throne, the crown off of your head, and you have to say, Jesus, there's only one place this belongs, and it's on your head, not on mine. You are my king, and I'm going to follow you.
And that's the sacrifice that they say. If you want to grab up the treasure, you've got to give up. You've got to make a sacrifice. God's grace is there. You can't afford the treasure. You can't afford the pearl. But in order to get it, you've got to do something. You've got to respond. You've got to admit what God says about the human condition. And so Jesus says, listen, friends, it's going to be difficult. But what are we about? We're about treasure. We're about the kingdom of heaven and its great, great and all-surpassing value. But in verses 47 through 50, he talks about why finding this treasure is so important. You see, the treasure for us, the gospel, is so in front of us all the time. We sing about it. We read about it. um, We listen to it on the radio. We talk about it. That there's the danger of us despising it by its by its casualness. We become so used to it that it doesn't thrill us anymore. And he gives a very important motivation for why finding this treasure is so important. He tells another parable in verse 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into a sea. He loves to use all of these analogies. The kingdom of heaven is not a net, but it's like a net. It collects every kind of fish And when it's full, they dragged it to shore, sat down, and they gathered the good fish into containers, but they threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the evil people from the righteous and throw the, throw the, uh, the evil ones into the blazing furnace. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's, it's a, a picture of this huge dragnet that basically two men would carry out into the lake or out into the ocean, and then they would stand on the ends and they would pull it back, and it had weights on the bottom, and it would go all the way. It would effectively make a wall between those men down to the ocean floor, to the lake floor, and they would just pull it back. And effectively, uh, depending on how the, the, the net was knitted, they would allow small holes to let like the sardines and the minnows go through. You, those don't make for a good meal anyways. But they could, they could filter out the small fish that you need to let grow a couple more seasons before they're ready to eat and make sure that you just caught the fish that were ready to eat of, of, of right size. And they would, they would go out as far as it could, either in a boat or walking out, and they would drag it back to the shore. And essentially they would catch all kinds of um, fish coming in. I love the way John MacArthur describes it. Listen to how he says this. He says, The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the waters of time and through the sea of mankind, drawing all men to the shores of eternity in order to be separated for eternal destiny, believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. What he's saying here is one of the reasons it's, it's important to get the treasure while it can be found is because judgment is coming. This whole picture of the dragnet is a picture of judgment because while now may be the time of fishing, There is coming a time of separating. In this parable, we see uh, something really interesting. In that net, all kinds of fish are caught, but only one kind of fish is kept. And in this instance, you want to be the kept fish. You want to be the kept fish. You don't want to be the fish that's thrown away into the fire. We're reminded that good and evil will remain in the same net until that time comes when God sees fit to separate them. So he says, guys, you have found this treasure. Be grateful. Because you don't think about judgment and you don't think about hell every day. And maybe you should. Because his second point in this parable is that Jesus warns that hell will be terrible. Listen, God is perfect. 
in all of his all of his perfections he is perfect in his love he is perfect in his holiness he is perfect in his uh, goodness he is perfect in his justice he is perfect in his wrath can you imagine for a second what it would be like to bear the perfect wrath of god it's unimaginable executing perfect judgment you know the the tendency for us as humans with our our little pea-sized brains is to think that we're smarter than god and go yeah, yeah, yeah we're talking about judgment i don't know that i would do that let me let me make a promise to you and when we die and we're with god if i have lied you can come and confront me about this but i think on that side of eternity not a single person will ever think god makes a mistake with the judgments that he makes you will sit here and go, you know, you know I, think, I think God should let him on a sliding scale. You know, I like him. Yeah, yeah, he didn't, he didn't love God much, but yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Let him in. We do that here because our scale for interpreting all of this is very different than God's. But I think when we get there, even if we're separated from our loved ones for all eternity, we will all say, God has done the right thing. He has been just. He has been perfect in his justice. And he has been perfect in his wrath. Listen to this quote. John Bunyan was an early Baptist, lived in the 1600s. And he didn't think that the uh, uh, Church of England had the right to tell them what to preach. He wanted to preach the Bible. And because of that, he got thrown in jail. Um, it's kind of funny how history repeats itself, isn't it? Um, those kind of days are coming for, for us. And so they threw him in jail. What does he do? He writes one of the best-selling books in all of the English language called The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, he has a sermon on hell in which he says this. And just listen to how terrifying this is. He says, In hell you shall have none but the company of damned souls and an innumerable company of demons to keep you company. While you're in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to you makes your flesh crawl, it makes you tremble, and it makes your hair stand up on, on its end on your head. But oh, what will you do when not only the devils appearing, but the real a uh, society hanging out with all of the devils of hell will be with you. The howling, the roaring, the screeching in such a hideous manner that you will be at your wits end and ready to go stark mad for anguish and for torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, well, there would be comfort. But here is where your misery lies. Here you must be forever when you see what an innumerable company of howling devils you are among you shall think this again this is my portion forever when you have been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the heavens or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore yet you will have to lie there forever this one word forever oh how it will torment your soul and yet, Billy Joel says, I'd rather party with the sinners than praise with the saints. Friends, hell is not. Dress it up, give them horns, give them a little pitchfork, put them in, put them in a red leotard. Try to make it cute. Hell is not a good place. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that you can avoid it. Make it clear that you love Jesus. Don't make people have to guess if you're a Christian. Make it clear, because he's warning that judgment is coming and that hell will be a terrible place. 
And he concludes with a short parable that I think gives us really good application. Verses 51 through 53, he tells the parable of the householder. And he talks about how the disciples continually grow in their understanding. In light of all of the parables we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, Jesus says to his disciples, Have you understood all these things? And the disciples said, Yeah. Therefore, Jesus said to them, Every scribe, every student of the scripture who is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. What in the world does this two-verse parable mean? Well, I think two things. The first is that the teaching that disciples receive should be firmly focused on Jesus. The teaching that disciples receive should be firmly focused on Jesus. You notice what it says. He says, listen, if you've understood these things, you've been instructed in the kingdom of heaven. And if you are instructed in the kingdom of heaven, you should be able to bring out of your storeroom things that are new and things that are old. Of those two things, the new and the old, which gets the place of priority? The new. It's in the primary position. You bring out of your storeroom the things that are new, the things that are old. By placing the new before the old, it gets emphasis. What is the new? Jesus' teachings. What is the old? The Old Testament. And he's saying, you have the opportunity now to begin to understand why some things were written in the Old Testament the way that they were. They pointed to me. They pointed to me. Why was there a sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Some people are under the misguided notion that Jewish people were actually saved by the blood of bulls and goats. Never happened. The entire purpose of the sacrificial system was to point to the perfect sacrifice that would one day come. Is there any man that can forgive your sins? Do you go to your priest and sit in a confessional and confess your sins? Or do you, uh, do you don't come to me. I don't know that I'm going to help you a whole lot. I might be able to absolve your conscience. The whole reason the priesthood is, existed is to point to a perfect priest that would come. And so everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of it. The gospel of the kingdom, while new, takes precedent over the old revelation and the new fulfills the old. And we have the distinct responsibility and opportunity to see the secrets of the Old Testament revealed in the new. That's what Jesus says right here to his disciples that it needs to focus on me. It needs to focus on the new. But then I think there's an implication here that's very important that he concludes with. And it's this. The teaching that we receive is meant for us to share. He says, all right, guys, listen. You're disciples. You don't think of yourselves as scribes. The scribes typically in Matthew are the bad guys. They're the Jewish legal experts. They know the law. And he says, I want you to understand something. Uh, I'm teaching you the word, the old and the new, so that you can understand the, the old in light of the new. And now you have been trained. You're like a scribe. And a scribe is like a, uh, what did it say? It said a, a landowner. You're like a landowner. You're like a person that has something. You're not a squatter. You're not an apartment dweller. You are a landowner. You have goods. And when you're a landowner, you have people that come to stay with you. And when people come to stay with you, what do you do? You go to your storeroom and you share out of your goods with the people that come and stay at your house. Because guys, listen. The Jewish scribes, they can't give anything new. All they can give is the stuff that is old. They don't understand any of this new stuff. You understand it. And Matthew is 
Matthew is an example of this. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer because he's trying to help us understand the Old Testament in light of the New. He's saying, you have something to share. And the truth is, when we think about the treasure of the gospel, I love to hear this. It happens not infrequently. Somebody who says, man, you know what? I have heard that Bible story. I've heard that Sunday school lesson. I've heard that parable. I don't know how many times in my life, but you know what happened? I learned something new today. Because there's always the opportunity for people who are disciples to learn new things. And so this treasure that God has given us that is literally overflowing is meant to be shared with each other to encourage each other. And it's meant to be shared with the lost because judgment is a reality for them. So I ask this question. If you were rich, and I don't know who it is, it used to be Ed McMahon, Publishers Clearinghouse came and knocked on your door, and you have won a million dollars a week for the rest of your life. Yeah, I heard it. What would you do? Would you keep it to yourself? I'd pay my mortgage off. the first week and have money left over and then I'd pay my parents mortgage off and I'd pay my sister's mortgage off might even pay my mother-in-law's mortgage off (laughs) what would you do would you become that weird guy that kind of hides it and sits in your home and never comes out because you're afraid somebody's going to ask you for it I think in this room I think in this room we have people that are not so selfish that if they won that kind of treasure, almost everybody, we'd all be going out for lunch today. Right, Henry? It's on your bill, huh? If he won a million dollars a week for the rest of his life, wouldn't it be fun to be creative about how to bless people with money? You know, just go to the mall. Here's $100, here's $100, here's $100. Let me know when you're going to be there, man. I'll show up, you know. Um, What a wonderful thing. And so from a physical standpoint, we sit there and we go, all right, if we were wealthy beyond belief, wouldn't it be cool to think about what we could do with that money? It's fun. I mean, it kind of puts a smile on your face. How could I be really creative with, like, just blessing someone's socks off? Hey, everybody, bring your mortgage note to church next Sunday. We're going to burn them all. Wouldn't that be a cool thing if somebody had the resources to, like, buy everybody's house for you? How incredible. You might not have that kind of treasure. The Bible says, you have either been a pearl merchant who has diligently searched and found Jesus, or you stumbled on it completely by accident because a friend confronted you with the claims of the gospel. And it says, that is worth everything in the world. And shame on us, if we think about ways that we could give away physical money, if we were dirty rich, when we are wealthy with the truth of the gospel. And yet, when it comes to sharing at that point, we go, well, you know, that's a missionary's job. You know, I don't have anything to contribute. Listen, if you don't have anything to contribute, you need to meet Jesus. Perhaps for the first time. Because if you have the gospel, if you know the gospel enough to be saved, you know the gospel well enough to share it with someone else. And God has given us a treasure that is so overflowing, it is meant to be shared. 
And if the judgment that he talks about is real indeed, why in the world wouldn't you? There are people that God has put in your life who will only learn the gospel because you're close to them. So friends, the stories today are not just cute little fables for that merry bunch of 12 disciples. They're real life for us too. What are you going to do with the treasure that you have?